and welcome to episode 48 of The Game Pit. This is another one of our Picking Over the Bones episodes. I'm Sean and here's Ronan. Hey everyone, welcome to The Game Pit. Thanks for coming back and listening and a big welcome back to Sean. Rumours of your demise were greatly exaggerated. Oh, it was touch and go for a while there, Ronan. Definitely touch and go for a while. Unfortunately, things didn't go my way and you pulled through. God bless you. The auditions for co-hosts were going so well. I had so many other options. <laughs> and all of them better. <laughs> than me. <laughs> um, so, it's another one of our Pick It Over the Bones episodes. That means we're going to choose four games, and we're going to pull them apart, investigate them, look at the good and the bad, and give you our verdicts. Now, these are the ones we've been promising for quite some time now, but just to remind you, what we're going to be going over, my two are Sherlock Holmes Consulting Detective and At the Gates of Luyang, and Sean has gone for a couple of Kickstarter fancies that came his way. Yeah, I went for Fallen and The Galaxy of Trian. Also, we will be announcing the winner of our Cool Stuff Inc. part of the Dice Tower Network competition. So one you is going to win $50. Also, we've got a couple of small card games to give away for a couple of other entrants. We've chosen a few of our favourites. We're going to read them out and then we're going to roll the dice because we just couldn't choose between a few of the real great entries and honestly overwhelmed by the number of entries we've got for this competition. Clearly being part of that network does something for us, Sean. It really does. It really does. And just before we go, Ronan, I just want to say uh, thank you for all the get well wishes. Overwhelmed is, is the word. I never thought that anyone gave it a damn, but there you go. I don't. I know you don't. You didn't say get well. <laughs> <laughs> Still a little You bit. kept asking me when I was going and what games you could have in the will. All of them was the answer. <laughs> Would you like to tell everyone where else they can find us and we'll take our bickering elsewhere? Yes, Ronan. We can be found on the, the Dice Tower Network, along with the very best in gaming podcasts. Also, you can find us on 2d6.org, along with written audio and visual gaming goodness. off this episode with a 2014 game which is Fallen from Watchtower Games designed by Tom W. Green III and Stephen C. Smith. These are both of the co-founders of Watchtower Games and this is their first mainstream game. It plays two players in a playtime of roughly about 90 minutes and what is it? It's a thematic one-on-one dungeon crawl-esque card and dice game with a very strong emphasis on the narrative. This game came through Kickstarter, as Ronan's already said, with $113,000 and 1,311 backers. Fallen is a game in which one player will represent the hero, and the other one is going to represent a dungeon lord or some sort of nemesis of some kind. The two will directly oppose while negotiating a storyline before facing off in a final battle. So let's have a look how that's done. The hero player is going to start off with a player card 
basic equipment cards and a starting upgrade card and they're going to have a deck of 20 power cards the player card will show what extra dice in addition to the two white hero dice that the hero is going to roll for each of the challenge types agility intelligence and strength this is generally the no dice at all a blue dice which is the weakest of the three colors or a red dice which is slightly weaker than the player's own dice, but a lot stronger than the blue. It will also show the hero's ultimate ability, which is a special power that needs to be charged up. The Dungeon Lord has the same, but he will have, or she, will have black dice instead of white, and three level one creatures to do their bidding instead of equipment cards. Each player will also receive five fate tokens. In the middle of the table lies the shadow track, and this will show if the world is cloaked in darkness or bathed in light. If in darkness, the Dungeon Lord player will be more powerful, and if in light, the hero will be stronger. It affects the strength of the ultimate ability, the cost of power cards, and generally makes life easier for the player that the current level support. The game starts up by setting up the shadow track based on the initial choice made by the hero after a short quest overview, and then the story is going to begin. The Dungeon Lord player will take three story cards and read them out, stopping when the hero makes a choice. The result of the choice sets the challenge type, dictates any further treasure is available to each player. Treasure cards are going to offer better equipment with the Dungeon Lord version being called Omen cards, and these are generally more powerful versions of the power cards. Now the challenge must be undertaken with the hero trying to beat the Dungeon Lord to gain experience points, treasure, either kill the Dungeon Lord's creatures, etc. The Dungeon Lord will be trying to stop the hero and gain the same bonuses for him himself or herself the challenge is carried out by rolling the said dice starting with the two black dice the dungeon lord will then look at what creature will do their bidding in the battle the creature will supply a dice of their own and will add some kind of bonus if they can match to the challenge type fate can be spent on blue dice or to use a power card if it is relevant at this stage but this can be done in stages with the dungeon lord rolling their dice then the creature dice before deciding what or if to add anything any sword results on the dice count towards the challenge score for the dungeon lord any lightning results will add a charge to the ultimate ability and any blood drops are going to damage the hero the hero will now do exactly the same but instead of choosing a creature will look how well versed in that challenge skill they are and that will show them what color dice and how many dice they can add to the challenge they may also tap or wonk as ronan likes to say their equipment cards to add dice and of course they can add fate to use power cards or a blue dice blood drops damage the creature that the dungeon lord chose rather than the dungeon lord the hero must score more sword results than the dungeon lord to win the challenge and whoever wins will earn experience points and the first choice of the lucky dip in the treasure tokens these are small bonuses and extra things you can get if the dungeon lord's creature is killed the hero again will earn experience points equal to its level and should the dungeon lord breach the hero's armor the hero won't die the dungeon lord will select a critical card which will add an ongoing handicap to that hero this will happen each time the dungeon lord breaches that hero's armor at the end of each story card 
the hero and dungeon lord will earn a set amount of experience points and can then look to spend them on upgrading. The hero can train to make their challenge skills better and the dungeon lord can add creatures of a higher level. The creatures go from level 1 to level 3. Once the three story cards are finished, the two players enter into the final battle with the hero taking the role of the narrator now they face off until one of them has won three battles and that person is the victor ronan that's fallen what are your thoughts so sean the first thing that strikes me when you open that box and you have a look at it is the number of options in there now as you said a couple of times already you've got the kickstarter edition which came with bonus content but there's Lots and lots to it. There are lots of options. There's lots of monsters. There's lots of storyboards. There's different options for the heroes. And it gives a feeling like this should be a real epic story. With the longer play length as well. And it creates this impression that you're going to be having real epic clashes. And as well as the options, the other, I think the first point I'll say is that when you start playing, the effects of the clashes don't feel that epic. The gains throughout the game are very incremental and when you first start off, I was expecting to kind of level up and have have this big field here and these huge battles and everything was a little bit underwhelming in terms of the experience to begin with given what the box sort of promises with so much inside it. I get definitely where you're coming from, but I think... If it had been that epic, it would have been such a long game. So to keep the flow of the game and to keep the pacing of the game, the initial battles do... Well, most all of the battles, really, but the certainly the initial battles when you're going through that first storyline, that has to be fairly quick. Otherwise, I think you'd just lose interest. Yeah, it's not the epic fantasy that maybe we thought it would be, and I certainly thought it might be when I was kickstarting it. But I, I think the pacing they've got right which brings me on to one of the points i've got about the game i think that the creators of the game have made certain choices in order to keep the gameplay alive to keep the flow of the game and they've done it at the expense of theme and and certain little things like i know you didn't really like the bonuses at the end of the round that that we both got one and there was no real advantage to the person who'd won the battle because you both get one and you've you've pretty much got the same choices it's a shocking, that system is shocking. But I think that they've tested that and found out that it gives too much of an advantage to the victor. They've already won, they've already, they're already on a roll, they, and then to, some of those powers are quite good. They're like a new equipment for the hero or a new omen card. But it's too random, because that's the one where the victor draws two cards, chooses one, and then the, the loser gets that discarded card and another random drawn card, and then chooses one of those. Uh, the difference in how likely you are to, are to get a good card is, I don't know, statistically, it sounds exactly the same to me. <laughs> the chances of, you know, and sometimes you, you draw two cards and they'd be pretty average and you'd have won that battle and then your opposition pulls out the perfect card for them and you go, hey? Yeah. How does, how does that just work? What it does is, the way it balances it is obviously, and you, you just mentioned it there, the pacing is great. It's incremental build-ups which means that you're both developing throughout the game. And then by the time you get on to the final battle or the third round of, of battles as well, the battles become much bigger and they do feel more important. And then it becomes more of a choice of what you're going to commit because you have more resources, therefore you've got more to commit, but you realise you can't commit to every battle. If you spread your resources thin, you're going to lose every one. And then you pick and choose your battles more. 
my problem with it is the f- in the first half of the game it just feels like oh, it doesn't really matter whether I win or lose it does matter but it's hard to see how it matters thematically I look at it as the dungeoneer or the hero character is just starting to get go to the edge of this dungeon and and there's not much there to worry about but as you said it paces and it, and it gets more and more important you can see the importance of those tiny little decisions the tiny little tactical decisions that as you said they don't seem to mean a lot but actually they can mean a lot at the end because it's such a tight game no matter how well or badly you've done in the game it's still reasonably tight for that end game but if the dungeon lord has managed to pierce the armor twice or even three times of the hero then they are more likely to win much more likely to win if the hero has had the majority of the wins and really smashed around the characters and got lots of improvements themselves then they are much more likely to win but yeah you can't really see it as you're going along but i just think of that thematically as the hero slowly building up and slowly delving deeper into the dungeon again and the dungeon's getting more and more dangerous as he's going in one thing i want to ask you Ron. I think that there is a massive onus on the Dungeon Lord character to keep the magic of this game alive. If the Dungeon Lord character who reads the story and keeps the arc of the story going, if they're blasé and not too fussed about it, this game is just going to lose so much. If they are into it and really ramp up the drama, if you like, I think it's a much better game for it. I think that's incumbent, to be honest, on both players. And... It's one of the most important things about whether it's going to be to your personal choice or not. Do you like the idea of this game? The theme is all important. It is all about the story. It's all about believing this is a clash between the dungeon lord and the hero and investing within that. If you don't like the theme, if you don't like the idea of going through a story game, this just isn't going to work. Now, I'm going to, in terms of the story, there's good and there's bad here, Sean. Firstly, there's loads of options. I've said it at the beginning and I'll say it again. So many, so many different things can happen and different ways of doing it and different stories to go through. But the, the first bad thing I'll say is you're supposed to randomly choose scenarios. There are set scenarios you get, and again, you get more with the Kickstarter, but you're supposed to just randomly choose them. And that can get really, really weird. And in a game where the story's so important, when you get jarred out of, hold on a second, I was just climbing the stairs of a temple, and now I'm on what? A, a bridge over a valley? And then suddenly I'm on a mountaintop. That doesn't make any sense. What do you think about that, that disconnect between the different stories you can randomly draw? Yeah, in the storyline it says a winged creature attacks you, but then the dungeon lords will choose a goblin. And yeah, that doesn't quite marry up. But I understand that's going to be nearly impossible, given the absolute amount of choice that you have in those cards. And it comes with a stack of story cards. I know Ronan has said it twice now, but I just want to re-emphasise it. It comes with a mountain of story cards. I don't think I'll ever see all of those cards in play you say there it's almost impossible for them to marry up the story cards and the monsters and what have you but it's not is it because they could have just selected a set you know these three go together these three go together these three go together that's going to hamper your choice as a dungeon master you know that you're only going to get one of the three or four monsters and i think that that would hamper the variety it's nice for the dungeon lord to when when, when a lot of the variety is nonsense 
Yeah, but I'll actually go back to a point you just made. You said that the story point is the strongest part of this game. I don't think it is. I actually thought... It no, was- I didn't think it's... I didn't say it's the strongest. I said it's the most important. You have to get on board the story or... Okay, right, the same same thing. I don't actually think it is. I think what I thought it was going to be, and I bought it because it was a story-driven game, and I was excited about it because it was a story-driven game, but that, I think, has turned out to be probably the weakest element of the game i actually really do love the battles and the choice of what you're going to do and and those little tiny tweaks that you make within the game i think it's a really tactical to and fro battle and i think the storyline just about holds its head above water but i think it's actually nowhere near as strong or as important as i thought it was going to be but do you feel like the meta story works do you feel like you are a hero and the other person is an evil overlord, and you are battling in you know, a, a good versus evil battle. Yeah, I do. I think that, as I said, I think it just about holds water. I think you do feel like I'm battling against you. You're evil. You're doing nasty things in general. Where I'm finding equipment in the dungeon. I'm fighting monsters in the dungeon. It's all there. All the, all the, the, the stereotypical elements of a dungeon crawler are all there. It's just they built it as having this really narrative arc and I don't think that's the strongest element of the game at all okay so you're saying you think mechanically it's stronger than I think yeah I think mechanically and I think they have made choices within the gameplay and within the mechanisms of the game to actually take away from the storyline and the theme of the game and actually make the mechanics of the game stronger to keep it balanced to keep the flow going and to make sure that that final battle is actually everybody has a puncher's chance okay I've got three (laughs) mechanical points to make to you quickly I I knew that was coming but go on right the shadow track light mechanism thing complete waste of time no I I felt that when I've kept it on the side of the track that I, I need it to be... Kept it or it's ended up there because you had no better choice when it came to reward. <laughs> or when it, when, it was right. the second okay. part yeah, of the reward. There's, there's, not, there's not a whole lot of choice. You can do things... When, when did you ever prioritise manipulating that track? I don't know if I prioritised it, but I've, t- I've taken opportunities to... If it's hovering on the breach, on the, on the edge, I've taken choices to actually move it into my sort of realm of light but uh, i'm gonna stick with my pointless (laughs) (laughs) but i'll say that uh, there are some characters that it just doesn't make that much difference to but there are some characters in there that it actually really matters to there are some characters that uh, it seems to really make them powerful or really weaken them if that if it attracts on the other side so maybe with those characters i haven't actually played one of those ones i've just looked through all of them Maybe that's when you actually have to start thinking, hang on, I need to keep that in the dark or I need to keep that in the light. I'm still calling shenanigans, you're talking rubbish. (laughs) Right, second thing. As a hero, you are generally biased in one direction or the other. You're good at strength, you're good at dexterity, you're good at knowledge, whatever it might be. So when the overlord is reading the story out to you, you're going to try and choose what you think will lead to a challenge in the area you're strong. And yet... 50% 50% of the time, that's not what happens. It's like, open the book. So you go, oh, that's an option. Open the book. Like, yeah, I'm a wizard. I'll open the book. You must leap away from the explosion of the book. Test, test your dexterity. Oh, 
<laughs> it's a really heavy book. Test your strength. Oh. Personally, I like that because if it was too obvious, then the period player would always know which way to go. In a dungeon, there's traps, there's things that are trying to mislead you, there's creatures leaping out at you, you're not going to always make the right decision. So I like that, I like that thematically, and I also like it mechanically, because I think it would take away from the game if I knew exactly what choices to make. Your face... When they were coming up, not as you expected, did not suggest Yeah, well, that's part of the game. Yeah, I wasn't happy about it. No! How could it be? Hitch up your robes and make the jump, Gandalf. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, but the most important mechanical point I wanted to put to you. The whole push your luck that you have on the dice rolls, that's really what it comes down to, especially once you get in and you've upgraded a little bit. The fact that... You're looking at this battle. You know what set resources you have for this round of the game, for this story card. You know how much equipment you have to spend. As the overlord, you know which monsters are going to suit this, that, or the other. More as the hero, I feel like. It's how much to commit to each battle and how far to push. And because the you know what you're trying to get as the hero, because the overlord has set their target, how much am I going to commit to attempt to do that? How many re-rolls and how much power I'm going to spend... That really, really works. It causes, again, especially later on, agonising choices of, oh, I've spent two of my four equipment and now do I actually cast this spell? Do I leave myself short for the next couple of challenges? Because I've committed so much. Do I really have to go for this victory now? I I really think that works. Again, more later on in the game, but I definitely think that that key mechanism is the heart of the game and it works. Yeah, it's, it's picking your battles. It's, yeah, you have to. You really have to pick your battles. If you go in with everything you've got for every battle, you'll soon find yourself with nothing to offer. But again, on the other side of the spectrum, I'm just recapping what you said basically. But on the other side of the spectrum, if you really hold back, then you'll end up at the end of the game with no experience points. But maybe you might, might win the last battle of the round. So yeah, you've really got to judge it well and use your resources well so i mean some sometimes it's easy sometimes there's a, an equipment card on offer that you really want because they can really boost you as a hero or the omen cards can really get get something nice into your hand as the as the overlord so people tend to go for it when when there's one of those on offer but yeah you're right that is that's the crux of the game that's that's what makes and breaks this game whether you like that or not so, Redden, we've uh, we've gone through the gameplay quite extensively there, and as always, I'm usually the one that will take it to artwork and components, etc. How do you feel about the artwork and the general design of the game? And then, what did you feel about the rulebook? The presentation of the game, I actually don't mind it. It's okay. I think the storyboards are necessarily text-heavy, Otherwise, they'd be huge. And if you're going to sacrifice having half of them just to get some artwork on there, I don't think it's worth it. I think the monster cards look good. I think the hero cards are adequate with the equipment and what have you. I think the whole thing does help generate the atmosphere of what you're supposed to be doing. I'd say it's a it's a solid sort of B-, minus, if you like, in artwork and presentation for me. You're not going to get overwhelmed, but everything's solid and well-made. In terms of the rule book, I actually think it's a pretty good rule book. I think... They maybe break things down a little bit too much and you get big, huge, full-page examples in the middle of like the flow of rules, which maybe I would have put towards the end or what have you. They seem to almost break the rules down too minutely. 
and and change things up. They could have given you a standard. This is what a battle's like. This is how it changes in the end game. Instead, you get sort of a fourteen point run through of battles in a couple of different places when twelve or fourteen points are all the same. That's a minor gripe, though. To be honest with you, it was pretty easy to learn. It was pretty easy to teach. The references there. It's again. Do you know what? It's probably a B minus for a rule book. They've done well on both accounts, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, well, you've stole, you stole my thunder. My my actual notes say that they've tried to be helpful with this rule book, and to be honest, at, at first it's a little bit too helpful. There's too much going on. It's very busy, and it's not necessarily in the right order, as you said. So you do you, you hand, end up flicking two pages on onwards to see what they're talking about on page two, but. Once you get the hang of it, it's all there. It's all written in very good, plain English, and lots of diagrams to help you. So it's, it is okay. What I do like, and obviously I followed the designer diary on Kickstarter about the game, is these guys were so pedantic with the manufacturers about every aspect. They sent the dice back about five times because they wanted the dice to be absolutely perfect they wanted everybody to be able to see exactly what results from across the table i think they managed to achieve that it's fairly easy to see when one player's got one or two swords or and a, a drop of blood or a, or a lightning symbol so you can quite quickly just see what everybody's got i think they did well they sent the cards back loads even the box they didn't like the texture of the box so they sent that back it was just amazing i can imagine the manufacturers weren't too impressed but these guys really had a lot of passion for this and i think it came through in the design of the game and the just general construct of the game but are you ready for your final thoughts on fallen moon i'm just gonna say one more negative before we sum up sean oh tut i know last one go on i think that when you're playing on the villain side of things when you're being the baddies i would have preferred a bit more agency the game tends to happen to you. You read the story, the hero makes a choice. You then have a set number of dice to roll. Then what to do, you, you're not the one ever set the target. It always feels like the hero is making the vast majority of the decisions. They choose where the story goes. They choose whether to push their luck or not. They choose whether th- this is an important thing or not. You don't get to choose what monsters you have. I think maybe like a draft of monsters or some sort of setup, some way of the villain being able to seed their deck so that they have chosen what comes next. Or I know you can choose which of your three monsters, but you don't get to choose which monsters come out. When you upgrade, you don't get to choose what monster you upgrade to using your experience points. I think something more for the villain to make choices would have been good. Some way of... I don't know whether it's, it's more of a lineup of monsters to choose from. You're not just drawing the top card or anything to give the villain to feel like they're having more influence on how the game goes. Yeah, I'm actually going to agree with you on this one. Yeah, I think the hero does make the lion's share of choices in the game. The villain does have a few little bits to choose from their their power cards and the omen cards. As you say, they get to choose from one of three monsters. But yeah, maybe a house rule where there's always five monsters on display and the and the, the the villain gets to choose which one of those they want to bring into their fold so yeah yeah i agree there, there could be a little bit more choice for the villain player nice nice, nice. thank you you're welcome uh, you feel like you're facilitating the game for the hero somewhat 
when you're being yeah I think that kind of feeds into what I was saying there's a lot of onus on the villain player like you like that word today I do it's, it's my big word word of the day so <laughs> there's there's a lot relying on the villain player to make the game work okay so to sum up I don't know how negative I've come across there. I think I was throwing a few things to Sean, sort of challenging on certain issues and, and picking bits apart. But I tell you what, I really like Fallen. I really enjoyed it. I found it atmospheric. It is long. You are talking a couple of hours worth of play here. And like I said, each small decision seems quite light, but they do add up. Do I think it's a perfect game? No. I don't think it's perfect, but I think it's a really, really good start. I think I'd love to see the game evolve somewhat for it to be successful enough for them to be able to bring out more. And like I say, perhaps for me, a little bit tighter, a bit more of a story, a bit more of a run through a dungeon, a bit more of an attack on a castle with correct monsters for the correct setup. That's something that I'd really like to see. But... If you like at all what you've heard here, the two-player, thematic, use of dice, but with great ways to mitigate against the luck. The luck's still there, don't get me wrong. If someone rolls double swords and four of their dice, they're likely to win that battle. But you can choose not to fight that battle and, and keep your powder dry. Just sort of levelling up RPG elements to it, there's a lot to like in Fallen. I was a little bit wary when Sean told me it was from Kickstarter and had all these options wasn't exactly in my wheelhouse but it is now and i really look forward to playing it more and more with so many different ways of playing again there's going to be a long time before we get bored of this so fallen i really like it i think it's a very good game well i'm pretty much going to agree with ronan i think the fallen is a beautifully crafted game where the designers have by all accounts taken the playtesting seriously and have made changes, in my opinion, to protect the gameplay and the balance of the game rather than the theme. So this game was billed as an immersive storytelling game where players would get lost in the myriad plot twists, but I actually think that it didn't quite hit that mark in that respect. The storytelling in the game isn't poor, and I do applaud them for making something that little bit different. But where I think that they have excelled is, is in the mechanics of the game. The combat is effective, exciting, and actually forces you to make simple but meaningful decisions. And the game definitely holds the interest and leaves a good taste in the mouth. I think the power cards add that gentle take-that aspect that once again adds to the experience. And the plentiful components make it a game that I think will offer new experiences each time you play for some time to come. So I think it's a resounding thumbs up from the game pit for Fallen. What do you think the onus is on in this one, Sean? Uh, The onus is on the onus, to be honest. Yeah, Yeah, there's a lot of onus in this. I can't wait for the onus expansion. That's the second one. Yeah, it's Myriad first, then it's Onus. So, 
next into the game pit to be mulled over is Sherlock Holmes Consulting Detective. This was designed by Raymond Edwards, Suzanne Goldberg and Gary Grady. This first came out in 1981. It had expansions in 1983, 1984 and 1986 back then. But why is it hot at the moment? Well, it got a reprint last year in 2014, which made a bit of a splash. Those three names may not be familiar to you if you follow games. They did have some other designs back in the early 80s. Probably Gary Grady was the one with the biggest other hit, and it was Gumshoe, which in some people's opinion is better than Sherlock Holmes Consulting Detective. Discuss that at your leisure. This was reprinted 2014 by Istari. Now, they're famous for making French versions of popular games, but also their own games, and they tend to have a Y and an S in the name, so the likes of Kalos, Isbahan, Mermi, Spirium, they are a big publishing house. It's advertisers playing for one to eight players. There's probably technically not a maximum number of players to this. As you'll see as we go through, it's very much an experience, but I don't think I'll be playing with that maximum player count. The advertised playing time is 60 to 120 minutes. My experience, you're going to be up towards the higher end of that. So, what's going on in the game? You play as Sherlock Holmes' assistant, his uh, Baker Street Irregulars. And you get to take on the cases which either he's too busy to, or he doesn't fancy, or whatever it may be, but you're going to be looking into cases which he's keeping an eye on. There are ten cases in the game, and you get a case book for each of them which introduces the case, introduces the story, and what's going on, some background info, some, some important characters, some clues and some leads to follow. Also within the box are newspapers. There are 10 of them. They go forward in date from the date of the first crime that you're asked to solve and that they're going to have clues in them. You need to study them, pour over them. There's a map of London from the late 19th century. There's also a London directory which has got a listing of the addresses of people in London and shops and banks and embassies and all sorts of different places you can go and visit during the course of your investigations. There's a case book. Now each case, as well as having that assistant, it's got a book of clues and they are linked to areas within London from the London map and London directory and they give you a postcode and you look up the postcode and you read the paragraph and that's your clue for visiting that area and I'll explain that more in a second and the last bit for each case is there is like a quiz book it asks you questions at the end with regards to the case about the main case you've been asked to solve and also some side cases other issues you may have investigated or got involved in somehow during the course of your investigations and that's the key to it those questions in the quiz book are what you're trying to answer you're not supposed to know what they are until you get to them and say right we've got enough information let's open the quiz book look at the questions and try and solve them and then you flip over and you get the solution and Sherlock Holmes tells you what's been going on the whole time and that's pretty much exactly how you play the game. You take that introduction, you take the lead, you, for example, take the scene of the crime, you look that up in the directory or on the map, you find a postcode for it, you open the casebook, and you read the paragraph for the scene of crime. And that will give you a description of people you meet there, evidence you find, what the situation is. And from there, you decide where you're going to go. So if you decide you want to talk to a witness, you might look them up in directory and find out where their home is or their place of work, wherever they've been mentioned. Look up that paragraph in the casebook, 
read it out. Every time you go to a different paragraph, different place, different location, it's a different clue, basically, you're going to be scoring up what effectively is minus points. You're trying to solve these mysteries in the least number of clues possible. In the newspapers, like I say, there'll be details of exhibitions or deaths or general happenings in London or the world, and, and they might give you clues on where you might go and find. Or you can go visit the police or the coroner or journalists or embassies or look up in the directory shops or banks which are some way linked to what's going on. And it's all about, as a team, discussing what you've read, discussing what's been read aloud, discussing what's going on, who you think is a priority to go and see, what leads you think are important, what leads you think are red herrings. Now, at the end, when you decide you've got enough information and you think you've got the solution, like I say, you look at these quizzes and you answer them. Each question you get correctly is going to give you positive points. So for getting the main, let's say, the murderer correct, you'll score 30 points. For then just finding out what weapon was used, that's another 20 points. And why they did it, maybe, another 20 points. And then there'll be a couple of side cases. Who was having an affair? Who broke in? Who stole the jewel? Whatever it may be. And there'll be points you can gain by getting those. Then Sherlock Holmes tells you, what the answer to just the main cases, it doesn't touch side cases, and it tells you how he worked it out and how many clues it took him to work it out. And for every clue, every lead you followed up, more than Sherlock Holmes did, you're going to lose five points. And Sherlock Holmes always scores 100 points, and you're going to attempt to basically score 100 or above in the game. The scoring, I'm pretty sure we're going to uh, get onto, but in this game... I haven't explained many rules because there aren't many. It's get a pen, you'll definitely need that, get some paper, you'll need a lot of that, read the story, and go from there. It's one of those games, open the box, five minutes later you're playing. Sean, Sherlock Holmes Consulting Detective. This game inspires wildly different opinions on it. Fire into it. And I can see why. Right. Got a question to open with. How did you feel when you opened that box for the first time. And if you already knew what you were expecting, how do you think people who don't feel when they open that box? That's a strange question. I know. <laughs> I ask, because I was expecting not a board game. I knew that it was a deduction game and there was a lot of reading and there was you had to deduce things. But you open it and it's just very basic. There's ten booklets and a rule book and a map, basically. That's all that's in that box. I was like, oh, I was expecting a little bit more is what I'm getting at. I was actually really excited when I opened it. <laughs> sorry, sorry, components boy. <laughs> um, yeah, I, th- I think we're going to discover as we discuss this one that it's not much of a game. It's, it's, it's a experience. It's something to read and enjoy and chat about and mull over and it probably shows through initially in the components it doesn't look like a game there's not dice there's not pieces there's not a map you move around if you've played you know stuff like 221B Baker Street or Letters from Whitechapel or something else you think may be similar to this it's not board gamey like that it is a set of books which you read in a certain way and enjoy the unfolding story yeah and I think there is method to my madness I promise you I think you have to set that scene for people because I first when I first approached this I thought it was going to have board game elements it's it's from Starry 
very famous board game manufacturers and yeah i was expecting exactly what you said something like 221b or letters from Whitechapel or some along those lines and it isn't it really isn't it it is exactly what you said it's an experience (laughs) hmm yes as an experience I think first of all we're slightly inclined to enjoy it more because of the London setting because I know you especially are quite interested in sort of Victorian London and some of the history of London the fact that pubs come up that we've visited or even that the board game club is held in now you're playing a game in which it's referencing a victorian pub which we go to to play games in that's pretty cool and the whole sort of setting i think is is probably onto a winner with us sean it is but i think also it does an incredibly good job of capturing what I imagine is the feel of Victorian London. I think in that respect, it is very immersive. The the language is is correct for the time. There's all cool blimeys and all right governors and... and all well, that's how we talk, isn't it? <laughs> well, of course it is, and we're all Strike chimney sweeps. <laughs> Meary. Meary Bobbins. So, yeah, I, I felt that the writing, although there was there was a few typos here and there and the odd sentence that just didn't make sense. <laughs> There's more than that. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I felt that the general gist of what they were trying to get over was very thematic and it was thematically written and I could quite easily delve in and, and imagine myself in that world and walk in the streets of London and interviewing suspects really yeah. a few typos <laughs> okay it's quite uh, a lot I like of the southwest is sometimes so for the french <laughs> south west that's interesting the spelling errors you go on a carnage ride rather than a carriage ride the uh, the flaws in the materials the fact that on the papers the papers in the initial printing were three pages and they're now two pages and they forgot to include some things in some of them. <laughs> That's interesting. In, in case nine, the suspect heads east to a location that's actually to the west on the map. And that might not sound like much, but when you've got a lot of information and you're trying to work out timings of things and it sends you in the wrong direction, that can ruin your whole solution. My, uh, my personal favourite, though, has to be the wonderful case three. In which, for the reprint, they've decided to change who the culprit is. So they changed some of the clues, but not all of them. (laughs) So some of the clues point to the original culprit from the original printing, and some of them point to the new culprit. And when you get the solution, it doesn't actually make any sense. So case three is one everyone says. You can just just ignore it. Just Uh, That makes a lot more sense now. <laughs> I struggled on case three. I was keeping it quiet because I thought I'd just done so badly. But there you go. Yeah, they, it points you in two different directions at least. And given the game is, I mean, we haven't sort of delved into what it's like to play the game, which I think is going to be quite important to get onto. Yeah. The game is full of information. I mean, full of information. You are not just reading out a few clues and logically following around exactly where they're pointing you to. No way. There is so much going on in each case. There are plots and subplots and red herrings. And it does not lead you by the nose. 
it will point things out. And the, the newspapers, the first one is only relevant to the first case. But for the second case, it's the first and second of the newspapers. Third case, it's the first, second and third, and so on. So by the time you get to tenth case, you've got ten newspapers, information in any of which may be relevant. And they're not going to hit you in the head with it. It might be like in the first case, points out that someone's been found dead in the Thames, and then their name comes up secondarily in the eighth case. And you go, hold on, I think in the first paper it said... Or there's a shooting contest and people involved, and then you know when they say they didn't, they've never met, and you go, oh, hold on, I think their names were together in this shooting contest in the first. And you go, hey, oh my goodness me, and it's not leading you around by the nose. It is difficult to follow. No, it isn't. But I think when you do work out those clues, it is so much more of a eureka moment, and you're so much prouder of yourself for working out that clue it's not as you said you're not just putting a and b and c together in the right order it is completely random sometimes and you have to rely on good memory good teamwork and good deduction it does work as a deduction now sometimes you just have to go on hunches though because the facts are not all there or you've easily missed something or there is maybe a misprint which is irritating uh, and I think that is actually part of the fun of it. Once you realise it may be impossible to get all the information you need in a reasonable amount of time and a reasonable number of clues. And sometimes you're just going to have to go, right, I, th- I think this is pointing this way. And I actually think it's more fun to do that because especially with the subplots, you can encounter them halfway through. You can kind of go, what? you went, so, Or someone went shopping. And if you'd read a couple of clues that lead into that, you'll go, oh, right, and the question will be, why do you go shopping? Oh, yeah, well, we knew we met him at the shop, but we don't know why he went shopping. But, you know, you can encounter stuff not in logical order, and you just have to try and put things together and think, why? how does that make sense? How does that in any way go with it? Or especially when you're deciding what clue to go to, you just have to look at what's there and go, well, which, which of these seems more important? Why is that character behaving like that? And that's where it really works as a detective game. As a mystery, you have to kind of try and read into everyone's actions and and not just get led around, as I said. Also, you mentioned about subplots. The subplots actually do score you points at the end of the the round. They're not just there to sort of throw you off the main case. They actually ask you questions about subplots in the game. So they're, they're equally important. They will score you points almost the same amount as the the main thing if you get all of the subplot questions right so there's lots to think about you're not just trying to stay on track you're also trying to work out why is this subplot going in this direction and what are you trying to find out and that might come back in another case as some of them do especially in the first three some of the stuff comes back to you so it's it's very clever how it's put together maybe not the best put together in terms of the actual construction yeah, of the of it, but I think it's very clever. the The general mechanics of the game are very clever. There are the odd irritants, like in that first case. There's a very, very important location. Now, all the locations are in the directory, or they're given you a postcode. For this location, you literally it gives you just a street name, and you have to scour the map to find the street name to find this location. Oh, yeah, it's right up in the top northwest, isn't it? No, that? no, it's actually the bottom. 
bottom. Oh, is it? Yeah, I know yeah. It's, in, it's, it's really small. It's, in it's the a little, yeah, right it's a little triangle look, in the corner. I think that's as bad as we can go for a spoiler. But if you're looking for location, it just says the name. Look, on that tiny map with tiny, tiny street <laughs> names on, bottom right corner, you'll, you'll get the postcode from there. It's down there. It's very important to go to as well. God, that was irritating. Because we knew we wanted to go there, so it wasn't like our deduction had failed. Just when we looked at the map and we looked, we did it. We actually looked for all the street names going, well, we must be somewhere of getting there. And we didn't see this tiny, tiny little name in like... Ugh, that was annoying. Also, something that I've had put players off and they haven't enjoyed is that there's lots and lots of reading out loud and it's not sort of reading you can just sort of read in monotone and it may be several paragraphs long and you kind of have to act the paragraphs a little bit to to get the full experience of the game yeah oh yeah definitely you have to really dive in it's another one i'm going to use my my word again ronan i'm going to use onus the word of the day there is a lot of onus. There is a lot of onus on that person who is reading out that case clue to make it stick, to make it stick in people's mind. As Ronan said, just don't read it out in a flat, monotone tone where nobody will take any attention to it. No, you've got... It's the same way we record this podcast. Exactly. Do the opposite <laughs> of what we do and you're on to a winner. <laughs> I keep on getting told you can tell I've got kids by the way I read out the paragraphs. I don't know if that's a compliment. It doesn't sound like it. It's when you slap me um, around the head and tell me to concentrate. That's really annoying. <laughs> you deserve it. One of the things I tell you, just one of the interesting things sort of people watching on this, what I really find fascinating is the way people take notes. You can kind of almost tell what people's jobs are or what their strengths are. You know, some people are really meticulous. Some people are written all over the place. Some people are noting every single word that's said down. Other people are sort of going a bit more, you know hunchy in general I really just a personal thing I really like to watch the notes that people make for the game and it's also such a cooperative game I know we said it's a cooperative game you have to work but everybody is involved and those discussions like we said that it takes a long time sometimes to read out those those large bodies of text about the game but then the discussion might take five ten minutes afterwards and it can be quite lively no i think we should go this way because this because this reason no no it's obviously sending us this way i think it's actually one of the most social games in that aspect for me yeah i 100 percent absolutely now there's, there's people that say that this can be played solo it's a good game solo I think you're missing out on one of the key enjoyments of the game by playing it. So that's not to say you can't. I'm sure it works. But the fact that people think differently, read different things, you can have discussions. The way we play it is when it comes to your turn, you decide what clue you're going to. And that's that. It's your decision. But you can ask for input. And people just read things and and notice different nuances to what's going on and a really great like you say discussion game and the sort of game you finish and then sit there for half an hour discussing it you really do and go where do we miss this where do we miss that and and sometimes even go back through the clue book and go where could we have gone to find that out you know really enjoy that and that's one of the things i was going to say about the player count sean one two eight discuss player count uh let's just i think two to four <laughs> sorry that this sits i i really wouldn't enjoy playing this on my own I, that's the my fault you like watching people take notes i like watching people talking about it and listening to their ideas and trying to sort of piggyback on their ideas to get to where we need to go to 
I couldn't imagine sitting on, on my own playing this. I just couldn't. I think I'd be quite bored. But eight. Oh people, no, I can imagine doing it. I can. Yeah. I can see the interest because you get to investigate just yourself. It's not for me. It, it, yeah, I can. I can see that some people could do it, and it's like I don't know, just sit down with a mug of tea and really get the get into it. But that's not for me. Eight people. Whoa. Eight, get out of here. Eight people all talking over each other, all different ideas, all, all think they know what where to go and what to do. No, no, that's just that's just a crowd. <laughs> that's not a gaming group. That's a crowd. Madness. All right, we have brushed over probably the most important thing about this game. The one thing that I learned that I, I wasn't quite aware of, but now it's firmly embedded in my heart. Come on, Madden. Sherlock Holmes is an utter, utter twenty, and a drug addict. <laughs> well, I, I knew that. That's in the books. He's what's the worst thing about this game? He's a bit uh, pompous, high and mighty. Oh, it's the scoring, man. The scoring. When you get the scoring, you open up the book, and Sherlock Holmes gives you the solution. And it could not be presented in a more irritating, <laughs> Well, obviously you'd make this decision, point. and then from that decision, obviously, unless you're a fool, you would go here. I can't believe you'd have missed that. And I did that in four clues. Most irritating thing about it is, firstly, you can't do it in the number of clues he does it in. It's literally impossible. He uses information that's never been presented to you. I, I, they did it to give you a score. They've done it, yeah, they, they've yeah. falsely manipulated how many clues he uses in order to give you a realistic score to attain by taking more clues and then scoring more than 100 points and having points knocked off you. That's the whole system works. And as a mechanical system, in that you can score over 100, then you get some points knocked off, and it is possible to score over 100. Yeah, we've both done it, Sean and I in different groups. Fine. But why does it have to make you feel like an utter imbecile? <laughs> that reading the, uh, the solution is so irritating. Well, that's nothing new for me, but I can see your irritation. We do our best, though. <laughs> Always cuddles on tap. Just before we get towards the end of our review, Ronan, this is a, a definitely finite game, isn't it? You have ten plays of this game. Yeah, so, ten, ten and done. Ten and done. So if you're looking for a real, real long-winded where you're going to be playing this in ten years' time, if you enjoy it enough to play it ten times, no, it's not at the moment. But we've contacted Istari, and there are expansions coming out in English next year. So there is a light at the end of the tunnel. But for that box on its own, you're only going to get ten plays. And for me, that that was a problem because... I want to play with certain people and I, I didn't want to ruin the investigation because you've only got 10 of them with like people who might not really get it, might not care. So I'm very precious about who I play this game with. So, yeah, that that was an issue for me. Yeah, but 10 plays for, what is it, £26 over here? Yeah. £2.60 a play. 
two hours entertainment. I'm not quibbling about that. I'm just saying that it changes the way I usually am. I'm just like, yeah, I'll play any game with anyone. I'm not with this. This one I want to play with you. I want to play with my wife and a couple of others because I know you enjoy this game. I don't want to have any of those those cases ruined by someone who doesn't really like it or doesn't get on with it. I mean, I see your point. It honestly, on a personal point of reference, I am so stupid about remembering books, films, TV, games, rules, that in a year's time, I am pretty certain I won't remember the solution. <laughs> and that's genuine. I mean that, honestly. I'm, I'm ridiculous. I forget things so quickly. So, you're talking about in 10 years' time, there's no chance I'll remember this in 10 years' time. I know that we talked to people who played it five years ago, and they go, yeah, I remember every single case, yeah. I remember every question. I know all the answers. I'm sorry for you. For me... No chance. I've had enough blows to the head over my life. It's just not happening. Fair play. Something good has come of those punches to the head. (laughs) (laughs) I've learnt my lesson. You can stop punching me now, Sean. No, never. Okay. Do you want to give us your final thoughts on Sherlock Holmes' consulting detective? Okay, so if the idea of reading to your friends or even alone for large periods of a game doesn't appeal to you, this isn't, isn't a game for you, so move along. I think this is a gaming experience like no other. It's a story that you can really feel that you are part of. If you like storytelling games, and I harken back to my days playing fighting fantasy books, that's the kind of thing that I like about it. If you like a good whodunit, or if you just like working out puzzles, then this is a game for you. I think it's a rich, rewarding, social experience. And my only gripe, as I said, is that there are only 10 cases to solve before leaving it pretty much useless to me. But there are more cases coming. So, But, as Rona said, it's worth every penny I paid. So I'm, I'm a big fan of Sherlock Holmes. It's one of my favourite games I've played this year. I really, really enjoy the experience of playing this game. During the discussions of trying to follow leads and the clues and where to go and looking things up, the trying to sort information into a logical order, love it. Absolutely love that part of the game. The end absolutely sucks. Sherlock Holmes, you can do one. You and me should never meet because I'm not happy with you. The flaws in the game are irritating. The mistakes they've made where it doesn't make much sense where you can get thrown off by no fault of your own that's really honestly not good enough and when the expansions come out at the beginning of 2016 they need to be better than that they need to be proofed better than that they need to make sure that they work better than that it's not that hard to do there are certainly enough fans out there of this game that you could just give them the cases ask them to run through them and ask them where any problems are Uh, Istari seriously not good enough but I totally immersed myself in the game I care about getting the mysteries right I'm gutted when I miss things, especially if they're there and I've seen them and I haven't picked up on it. There's a physical clue in the very first case which gives you sort of the points in the right direction. We didn't play it together, but we discussed the case afterwards. Sean picked up on it straight away. It's literally in the introduction. We completely missed it in my group when we played it and I was really, I still remember it because it irritated me that we forgot about that. You have to sort of ignore the scoring. The questions you get asked are pretty specific. You might have a lot of information about the case, but if they don't question you about that specific information, they question you about something else you've missed, or you haven't gone to a certain location because you're trying to prioritise time, it's just the way it goes. You have to just roll with that a little bit. It's actually a game that is great 
and rubbish all at the same time. There's some ridiculous flaws in it, but overall, so fantastic that I think the good outweighs the bad. I'm really happy to have got it, played it, really looking forward to the expansion, and I hope that they give it that polish, that 10% which is missing, which will just remove the gripes, remove the problems people have with it, fix broken cases, for example, and let it really, really, really fly in Excel. And that's Sherlock Holmes Consulting Detective. Okay, now on to a very exciting part of the show. This is where we're going to find out who's won our Dice Tower Gen Con competition. So we asked, what would be your ideal Gen Con release and who would design it? Or who would re-implement your favourite game? So we've got some of our favourite answers and we've chosen six. And at the end of the six, we're going to roll a dice and we've actually added two more prizes. We've added a prize of a worst game ever a game that we sponsored as the game pit and empire engine by our friend of the game pit chris marling so without further ado we're going to go to our first possible winner and that is ben green ben has said i'd really like a game based on something like rogue mail by jeffrey household basically the protagonists on the run in the English countryside, foraging and stealing supplies whilst being relentlessly pursued by a ruthless double agent. Every item you end up having to steal, everywhere you sleep and other random events would result in trail points being accumulated. When the trail gets too strong, the agent tracks you down for a tense showdown. If you have enough resources and equipment, you may be able to survive and escape. But if you have been foolish, you will end up a corpse in the ditch under a hedgerow. Who else could be more suitable to make this lavishly produced game full of difficulty, tension and story but Ignacy Trezicek? So that's Ben Green. Ronan, who's next? This is from Bruce Freestone. Thank you for your kind words, Bruce. He has also chosen Ignacy Trevicek. I think they're just trying to make us say that name too many times, Sean. His entry is... My ideal Gen Con game release would be by Ignacy Trevishek, game set in Ian M. Banks' magnificent culture novels. Novels which are close to my heart, Sean, I really like them, that's why I like this entrance. Based on Ignacy's track record as a versatile designer, who's able to bring out themes strongly, and in particular his impressive achievement with Robinson Crusoe Adventures on the Cursed Island. He's ticking all my boxes, Sean, that's why he's in here. Banks' science fiction novels have been strangely neglected in adaptations to other media. I believe they would make amazing films. These tales of a flawed utopian far future with a benevolent AI and humanity's enhanced existence managed to maintain a highly charged, inventive and intelligent story arc. Fertile ground for a complex thematic game. So the game will be story-based, not necessarily co-op, with a game system that manipulated players like a puppet master. With the use of enhanced technology, personal contacts and a limited level of bargaining power, players would try to achieve their individual goals while being caught up in the larger story of futuristic mayhem and intrigue. Difficult to pull off well, but Mr. Trevicek has the talents to do it. I love the idea. It sounds like possibly similar to Android, Sean. And that got into the final six for me. Yeah, definitely, Roland. That's exactly where that sits for me, that Android sort of sphere. And, you know, I like Android, so happy days okay so next up is adam demers and this is just to show that we're not always looking for the big long entries this is just a simple idea that we really liked 
Adam would love a Harry Potter version of Legendary by Devin Lowe and Upper Deck. I can see that working. That could be cool, definitely. We like yeah, that, didn't we, All Legendary games are big hits with my uh, my 12-year-old daughter and nephew, and I think Harry Potter would be fantastic. I think they'd really enjoy it. be a great sort of a family game to go with that system. Good idea. I like it. Cool. Who's next one? Next one is from Joseph Lee, and another quick one, and his dream game for Gen Con would be a reimagining of Betrayal at House on the Hill with a Scooby-Doo theme designed by Bruno Cathala and Ludovic Malblanc. So Betrayal at House on the Hill is one of those sort of flawed gems where some games go perfectly and other games, once the hoarding comes out, go a little bit downhill. <laughs> I just like the idea of the Scooby-Doo theme. I think making that game a bit more fun, obviously with the spooky monsters, with the, you playing particular characters... And with those two guys designing, it probably come from Matagal or something like that. I can imagine it with amazing components. And I like that idea. It's kind of simple. Same as the legendary Harry Potter. I'm on it. Yeah, those two designers would really tidy it up as well in terms of a, a gaming experience. So, yeah, good idea. The next one, something close to my heart, and you'll see why in a minute. It's from Joshua Schultz. And Joshua, his current favourite game is Francis Drake by Peter Hawes. But he would like to see Francis Drake redesigned by Ryan Laukat of Red Raven Games. The Laukat. I love... He's pushing your buttons. He is pushing my buttons. I love Ryan Laukat's designs, but I love his art even more. Amazing. And he thinks the art would be amazing. He could reskin it with a sci-fi theme or keep the theme and tweak the game mechanics. So that's from Joshua. Absolutely bowling down my street with that one, Ronan. You read that, and that was in the final six straight away. I'm oh, aware. It really was. It really was. One of the early ones. And I like okay. Francis Strike, so happy days. <laughs> I'm not convinced that you didn't put that in. Last one. The last of the six is going to be number six when we roll the dice. Is from Lance Coffee. His ideal Gen Con game is actually about Gen Con. It's clever. It will be designed by Vlada Schwartel. I see an adventure game where one archives points by going around and doing all the different activities at Gen Con. If you're able to buy one of the top three hot games, you get X number of points. If you get two of those top three or all three, more and more points. If you win an RPG, more points. If you travel around and do a little everything, then points. He likes points. He's on to the points. There are kind of two set collections. One of all of bulking up and gathering all of one of a few types. You can go around or you can just concentrate in certain areas. But there are also challenges. Not sure how they will be implemented. There are sold-out games, long lines, smelly gamers, or if we're going to be more polite, orcs, or whatever Vlad decides, difficult ways to get food, cosplayers blocking the aisles, faraway hotels, full events, and such. I like it. Lance put some thought into how you could turn the con experience into an actual game, and I think that one caught both our eyes. It did. It's, it's kind of the game that Essen, the game, 2013 probably could have been. Are we still talking about that? Yeah, of course we are. Can't we just file that under folly and move on? <laughs> so we're going to go for the top price first. I am sitting here with my handy zombicide dice tower. I'm going to hold it really close to the mic so you can hear the dice going down. And the, the number that represents the person is going to be the first winner of our 50 dollar voucher for cool stuff inc and they will go into the grand prize to win five hundred dollars here we go ronan it's number three number three is adam demes with his harry potter version of legendary 
you have won a $50 voucher to Cool Stuff Inc. We will forward your name to Tom Vassell and he will be in contact soon and you will be in the live draw that Tom will do in a few days' time with just a few people to see if you win $500. Well done, Adam. Great idea. But we did like these entries so much. We've got two more consolation prizes, a couple of small card games. So the next one rolled is going to win a copy of Empire Engine by Chris Marling. Sean, go for it. Okay, yeah, congratulations, Adam, by the way. It is number four. Number four is Joseph Lee and his Betrayal at House on the Hill with a Scooby-Doo re-theme. Well done, Joseph. You've won a copy of Empire Engine. We'll fire you an email, get your address, and send it out to you straight away. Congratulations. Uh, congratulations, Joseph. And this is the last one. Number one. Number one is Ben Green. Well done, Ben. You win a copy of The Worst Game Ever, which isn't actually the worst game ever. Clever uh, title there. He had his Rogue Mail one, where you're on the run in the English Forest in the English countryside foraging, stealing supplies. I really like that idea as well. So well done, all three of you. Well done, the other finalists. Sorry you missed out. Thanks, everyone, for entering. And everyone, please do wish Adam well. It would be lovely to have one of our Game Pit listeners win the big prize. Absolutely. Congratulations, all. to the second of our Kickstarter games and this is Galaxy of Trian, another 2014 release and it comes from Creative Maker LLC designed by Gregor Skalarus, Sebastian Oliwa, Serowin Biotrowski and they are all debut designers it plays 2-4 to four players in about 45 minutes and it is a tile lane area control game set in space a little bit of background, the Trian race was a super-evolved, technologically advanced civilization, but they have decided to explore beyond their current boundaries and have vacated all their planets and left behind their technology as they head off on a crusade. Each player will represent one of four alien races vying to take control of the technology left behind by the Trian race. The races are the Kulto, the Kaka, the Zem, and the Borfnari. During the turn, the players will choose the top tile from one of two stacks. There are 36 tiles in each, and each of them is triangular shaped and has two sides that a player chooses from to place. Retire Lane is the mainstay of this game. So let's have a look at what is on the tiles. Each tile may have one or multiples of the following. Nebulas, or parts of nebulas. Gas clouds, these are basically the the walls that close off areas. Planetary systems, or planets. Trian extractors, teleports, exmitters, or trade outposts. Once the tile is chosen, it must be attached to the central tile system, or the player area, as most people would refer to it, following certain rules where planetary connections via starlight paths can't be cut off by dead space for instance players will be looking to build and close off planetary systems and nebulas while ensuring that they have control of them as they are closed and then scored 
Closing a nebula will get the controlling player one point per tile. Closing a planetary system will get two points per tile. And closing off an area of open space gets three points per tile used to close it. When a nebula is closed, minerals equal to the number of tiles are placed plus any extra for any trian extractors that happen to be there. These are now available to harvest and will get you points at the end of the game. Players will then have a choice of placing one of a set number of emissary tokens. The majority in a closed area will give ownership to that player. Then they could place a research station if, if there is an emissary already there. This is allows you to harvest the minerals. And finally, they can upgrade to a space station and these give end of game scoring bonuses players can also use trade outposts they can place an error three to do one of two actions they can either teleport which is move an adjacent emissary tile to another place on the board or research, basically gain two points. Points are scored when sections are closed and at the end of the games, again, with any score modifiers added, i.e. the space stations. Lastly, if a tile with an X-meter is placed, then all player tiles and emissaries return to the owners on any tile touching the one with the X-meter and no emissaries may be placed on future tiles boarding the X-Mitter tile. At the end of the game, as stated earlier, the final scoring is going to take place with research stations multiplying the scores by 4 and space stations multiplying the scores by 10. Then the minerals are added up that players have gathered and the final scores are totaled. Ronan. Galaxy of Trian. So it's a tile layer, Sean. And... Straight off, I guess, we'll go to how it looks, how it's made. We'll get that out of the way for you. I know it's very important. (laughs) It is the reason I bought the game. Uh, And in terms of looks, in terms of how it's made, Galaxy Trian's a good purchase because it's very well made and it looks cool. And especially once the Galaxy itself has been built up and you've got the different areas and there's gems out and... I don't know, the emissaries and the space stations that, that, they could look a bit better. They're just, they're kind of simple tiles. I guess, functionally, not that great, but it's, a it's very striking. striking. It's a very pretty game. I got the Geek set version, which is like the deluxe version, and that came with all manner of goodies, like a little cloth bag depicting the alien race of every single race in there. I think there was an extra alien race, and Ah, oh, there was so much in it. There was even a thank you poster with the designers and signed. It was just a, like amazing. A little, there's a little wooden rack. I think that comes with every purchase to stack the tiles in, so so that the tiles don't fall over. It, it's there's been a lot of thought into the production of this game, and it does look really nice, as you say, laid out in front of you when it's finished. It's very pretty. And lots yeah. of thought going into production. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not sure so yeah. much thought went into the gameplay. <laughs> you're making a uh, <laughs> you're making a tile layer, and you make those tiles triangular. That is straight off a poor decision. I, for this game, it is. Maybe someone can make a triangular tile laying game work. I don't know, but in this game, it limits your options. It limits how you can build things. It limits the interaction between tiles because it'll only have a board of three other tiles. It's not a good decision. 
for this style of game, which is going to be... It's going to get directly compared to Carcassonne. In Carcassonne, there's not that many options, but with four sides in the tile, at least the tiles interact a bit more. In this, when you're attempting to sort of build into someone else's area, like in Carcassonne, you've got to build around a corner. You've got to build around a hexagon. You've got to keep going round and round and round and round with these triangles, and it's just pointless. You, you, it touches or it doesn't touch. Don't worry about trying to build round, because it's not going to happen. The triangles is a terrible idea. I didn't really hate the triangles, but I found that the way you build into other people's territories was very clunky and not a lot of thought given into it. Carcassonne is very clever. You can't just you can't place anything that's connected. You, you can't place a, one of your meeples on there, and then you have to almost work out in your mind where it's likely to go if you're not connected and try and then connect that castle or that field or that road and then you get a piece of the the other person's action but this one is just blatant you can just build right next to them place your tile and then all of a sudden you the, the other person's got to build something and it becomes a race who finishes it first i found that just very clunky very not a lot of imagination gone into that. It's just the most basic area control you can get. But but they have to do that. They have to do it because the shape of the tile means you can't do clever tile placement. You cannot manipulate the space on the board or the game area that you're creating because the triangle limits you so much. Uh, so therefore, they can't come up with a clever way of interacting they're forced to use that clunky I'm next to you, I'm next to you, why I use one I use another one, I use another one, I use another one and us two are getting in a race, adding emissary after emissary into this system while the other two are laughing and getting on with their own thing and we're losing this game because we're fighting over one area. So what it means is people very rarely fight over an area because it's just not worth it. So you end up with this is my area, that's your area that's her area, that's his area, that's it, we're not going to interact. It comes down to the fundamental thing. Listen, you make a tile lane game, the shape of the tiles is fundamental. Awful idea. I feel like they've tried to mitigate against that by making the tiles double-sided so that you've got a choice of what to place. They're almost trying to give you more options, but when there isn't more options there, it's the illusion of more options. They're not actually more options. You've still got a triangle that's going to be quite hard to do anything other than just place it in an obvious place. You've led me in there beautifully. Options. <laughs> So you get one action, okay, at the end of your turn. You or place top, do an action from a list of extensive list of several actions, okay. At the beginning, you've nothing on the board, so you have very few things to do. Systems won't be closed, patch systems won't be closed, you can't really upgrade, you, you're not really like to be in the gem areas yet, so there's nothing to do, so people relatively often end up just taking points, the default action. Mid game, there are some things to do. Not terribly important what order you do them in, because the things of what you're going to do are obvious. You're going to end up with a space station in your planetary areas, and it's just an obvious path you're going to do. What order you do them in, fine. End of game, no options for your actions again. Everything's finished off, everything's sealed off, everything's upgraded, nothing to do. Okay? They did try and address this because they've included the, uh, the conflict expansion in there, which you can use spaceships, but going with just the base game, Sean options for your actions did you feel they were there no no it was again any illusion of options in the game was actually just random chance like the the x-mitter if you maybe had three x-mitters for each player 
and you've got to choose when to use them, then that's an option. The fact that one player could draw all the X-Mitters and just completely wreck everyone else's plans by placing them around the other players, it's not an option really, is it? It's just making the best of your draw, and it's an easy choice to make. So there really isn't a lot of options. I suppose the nearest to it is choosing which systems to upgrade because you've only got a finite amount of space stations you've only got three or four i can't remember um choosing which ones to upgrade and trying to play account but uh trying to make the most of where you place that space station or but that's obvious because you just go to you know one with most planets yeah yeah. most (sighs) that's that's yeah i actually the x-mitter it's funny i think we both want to mention them because they're the only tile which, which could do something interesting there's an option there. I love your idea. You have a limited number of X-Mitters. You can play them at a certain point during the game. You choose when. Great idea. But, and I'm going to hop back to it, they only interact with three tiles. Yeah. So yeah. therefore, it's very unlikely you're going to have an interesting place to put an X-Mitter just because of the way the board builds up. And once it's down, no one's going to go next to it. It kind of creates more dead space. Well, they can't go next to it. Again. Yeah, but you can't place next to it, but you can't, yeah, you can't put yeah. emissaries or whatever. Yeah. So it, it becomes dead space. It becomes, well, I'm not going to go there. So it's another way of limiting the options. Of So instead of being what could be an interesting tile, it becomes like an attack tile and shake things up and kick people out of planetary systems they've upgraded. You're never, like, a, a finished planetary system is so rarely going to border an open space. They just. Ugh. So they've brought in this this conflict expansion that lets you have spaceships, which adds the illusion of choice with your actions because you can fly spaceships around, you can attack each other, try and kick people out of areas. All it means is if you fly a spaceship in, I fly a spaceship against you. If you fly at this place, I'll fly it to that place. You come and try and steal my gems, I go. It's after just it. another tier of emissaries, isn't it? It's just another tier. Like you've got an embassy, I've got an embassy. You've got a ship, I've got a ship. Tit for tat. You know, I spend an action to move it, I spend an action to move mine. Just a way of burning up those actions. How did you feel about the resources that go, all these random resources? I know that they've said that the colours of the resources are actually going to mean something for future expansions, but the, in the base game, again, that's what we're reviewing, there's just random coloured resources, you fling them down if you walled off a nebula, and yeah, you pick them up if you if you remember <laughs> I, I thought they just again it's just something they've added to the game to give the illusion of choice you know it's not a choice you are going to do that it's, that's, that has to be done if you've got the majority and you can you can pick up one or two of these you're going to do it of course you're going to do it what that is part of another problem with the game the overly complicated scoring it's ten times what it's four times who it's uh, that tile is three times the number of tiles, but that tile's two times, and that one's what one time the number of tiles because of why what? <laughs> huh? And and not ever anywhere laid out in a table or or a way of showing you well oh, see, now, and easily how it's so now you've led me nicely in that rule book it is full of discrepancies full of misleading information really confusing this is a simple game i know the scoring is difficult but the game in itself is simple and it, it really was a burden to learn how to play it first yeah and hard to teach and even when you're wild into it a few rounds into each game people are still asking questions how does that work the scoring adds with that because it doesn't link in really to the play so people uh, I finish an area space 
what do I get? <sighs> just a pain. Just a pain. Sean, and overall, do you feel the game rewarded good play or good tile draw? It's good tile draw. I, mean, I think I've already said as much in terms of you just make the most of what you get. Which, yeah, you could. a lot of people say that about Carcassonne, but I think there's so much more to Carcassonne. And this game has actually made me appreciate Carcassonne even more. So if there's something good that came out of this, and I don't, don't despise this game, but if there's something actually really positive, it's actually made me go back and play Carcassonne and appreciate the subtle nuances of Carcassonne. You're a Cark fanboy, and you've said Carcassonne 18 times that minute, by the way. <laughs> okay. Is it the new Onus? It might be the new Onus. It might be. Onus is on Carcassonne as the leader of the tile drawing genre. Ah, that's, a, that's a lot of Onus. <laughs> okay, so Ronan, um, I think everyone kind of knows what way we're going with this one, but do you want to sum up anyway and just, just finish it off? You know, I'm more sort of fed up with the game than dislike it. Well, I, my question with this game, when I look at it, is why am I going to play this game? Why? I'm I'm flooded with too many good games. There's so many games I want to play that I don't have the time to play. It's it, The theme is generic. Building up space, conflict in the galaxy, whatever. There's nothing new here. It hasn't got depth. It's got filliness. If I never played it again, I wouldn't miss it. If I had to play it again, I wouldn't hate it. It's not awful it's just something to do it's just a thing and it happens and it's not terrible it's not very memorable and it seems like a waste of good components oh it's quite depressing (laughs) I like your summary there (laughs) um listen the game does look amazing and they have put a lot into this they were really passionate they're new new game company new designers and i don't want i hate to rain on their parade but they haven't quite hit the mark with this one it is style over substance really the rule book is confusing the final scoring is confusing it's too much luck driven there's not enough choice it's on my trade list, so if anyone wants it, come come find me. And actually, it's at my house. If anyone wants it, come find me. Ah, you stole my game again. <laughs> it's a good attempt, but it's really not something that I'd be like looking to keep in my collection. And that is the Galaxy of Trian. So the fourth and final game we're going to cover this episode is At the Gates of Luoyang. This was designed by Uwe Rosenberg, designer of Agricola, Leave, Aura et Labora, Caverna and Patchwork. Released by Z-Man Games, famous for, well, many of the games above, also Terra Mystica, Robinson Crusoe, Pandemic, Stone Age, many, 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 many more. This game was released in 2009. It's for one to four players with a listed playtime of 60 to 120 minutes. And in this case, I'm going to say towards the lower end of that count. Now, this is part of Uwe Rosenberg's Harvest Trilogy. It was the first of the trilogy to be designed and the last of them to be signed up and released. Uh, Agricola and Leave were released before this one. What's the theme? You are a local farmer in Han Dynasty, China. You're growing vegetables on your farm and every week you're going to take them into the capital to sell. The game is all about making money 
and you're going to use that money to pay for points at the end of each of nine rounds and at the end of the game the player with the most points will win the game. Each player starts with a nine space field and ten cash and before the game proper begins you're going to seed that field with nine of one of six vegetables. So you choose, the vegetables come at different prices and you pay for one of the vegetables and you pop it into that field and the other eight spaces fill up. And those nine vegetables are going to be basically a countdown of the rounds. On the round that that field empties during your harvest, you know, that's the last round of the game. And it's kind of a clever, elegant way of being a round counter as well as something practical and useful within the game itself. During each round, we're going to go through three phases. First one is the harvest phase. Each player has an individual deck of eight extra fields which are going to get revealed one at the beginning of each round up to the last round. These fields have between three and six spaces on them and they allow you to grow differing types of vegetables. In the smaller space fields you can grow higher value vegetables and in the bigger space fields you can grow only the lower value vegetables. You also then take one vegetable from each of the fields which has vegetables in it in your farm and that's how the round counter works with your original nine space field. The second phase is the card phase and in each round each player is going to play two cards. They're going to play one from their hand and they're going to take one from what's called the courtyard and play it. So what's the courtyard? Well the start player begins the courtyard and they add one card from their hand to it play goes to the next player they may play one card from their hand and take that card from the courtyard or they may add a card from their hand to the courtyard now what's stopping you in the timing of that is when you decide you're going to play your two cards all the remaining cards in your hand will then get put into the courtyard and the kind of the key to that round that phase is that you're deciding what to offer to the other players and when to pounce the types of cards you're going to be able to take are more fields, which will cost you two of your gold, but will give you more space to grow vegetables. There are markets. Now, each player has got to play a board with sort of four sectors to the left and the right of your score track. The markets go in the top left, and they are going to come with certain vegetables on, and you'll be able to swap the vegetables you're growing for the vegetables available in the market. And that's how you're going to be able to turn beans into pumpkins and plant the pumpkins and get more pumpkins and basically bring variety into what you're growing across your farm there are also regular customers they go in the top right corner of your board they have got demands which need to be met every round and it's usually in the form of two vegetables and they're going to be the same two vegetables over four rounds generally and if each round you meet those demands you'll make a certain amount of money if you fail to once your regular customer will become unhappy with you if you fail to a second time it will start costing you money the third type of card is a casual customer that goes in the bottom right of your board now they want usually three vegetables and they'll pay you a certain amount of money but they're not on any timeline they're very relaxed customers and they'll take the order whenever you can fulfill it the amount of money they give you will raise or lower depending upon whether you have more casual customers lined up or regular customers lined up so you'll get less money if you're collecting lots of casual customers and not fulfilling their orders and the last type of card and the sort of most varied card are helpers. There are lots of different types of helpers. They go in your bottom left corner of your board. And they will allow you to somehow break the rules. Take vegetables to someone else's market. Take vegetables out of your own fields when you shouldn't really be able to. Make things cheaper. Allow you to play more cards. Take more cards from the courtyard. Just various in-game effects to help you during the game. 
the last person to play cards becomes the new start player. And they're going to get to go first through for the rest until the next card phase. However, in a four-player game, this gets a little bit funky. The last player takes a big start player token. The second last player to play, take cards becomes the second player. Then the first player chooses a partner from the two remaining. The second player gets the remaining player. And that's the only person you can interact with the rest of the round. So if I'm the last player to play cards, I become the start player. I choose Sean. He's now my partner, if you like. My helpers can only affect him. I can only go to his markets. And it is basically helpers. That's that's who I can attack and target with my cards, rather than making it more of a free-for-all. But it does mean that the two pairs can play simultaneously and speeds the game up somewhat. We then move on to the action phase. There's a number of different actions you can take, and I'll just run through them really quickly. You can sow vegetables in your field. You add one vegetable for it to a field, and depending upon the number of spaces in the field, you get extra vegetables to fill it up. You'll be able to harvest them in the harvest phase from now on. Everyone also has an individual vegetable shop, and you can buy and sell vegetables to your own shop. Very inefficient. To buy the vegetables are expensive. To sell them, you get very few coins. It's just a way, again, to add variety if you're stuck to fulfill a particular order or customer. You can trade at your market, I described that earlier. You can hand in vegetables to get different types of vegetables. Again, perhaps to fulfill an order or perhaps to then sow in a field. So you can do these in any order and give you some variety. You can use or discard your helpers, use their powers or simply get rid of them. Why might you want to do that? Well, you could do such a thing as buy a two-pack. And a two-pack is you take the top two cards of the deck and you decide if you wish to play one or both of them. The cost of that is the higher number you have of either market cards or helper cards in your tableau. So you might want to get rid of helpers to make that cheaper. You can obviously deliver to your customers now. And that's the regular customers or casual customers. And they'll pay you according to how long you've been delivering to the regular customers for, the longer you've been delivering to them, then the more money they'll give you. And they like to stick around for four rounds. Or the casual customers, again, will give you money according to their individual order. And the last thing you can do or the last thing you have to do actually is store your veg you start off with the ability to store one vegetable you can increase it by spending a couple of gold you can store more vegetables then you get the opportunity to score points the first point you score in each turn costs one gold so it is extremely important you finish every turn with at least one gold you may then move extra spaces at the end of each round however the cost to move a space is the point value of that space so let's say for example i'm on six points at the end of a round to move to the seven point space will cost me just one gold it's my first move to move from the seven to the eight point space will then cost me eight further gold and if i had enough and wanted to i can move on to the nine space and it'll cost me nine gold however if i wanted to stop on the eight space at the end of the next round i can move to the nine space for just one gold but a further move will then cost me 10 gold because i'm going to the 10 point space and that's how scoring points works there is the option of taking loans out at any point during the game loans will generate you five gold but you can't pay them back and they will cost you a point at the end of the game which can be very expensive and like i said the winner is most points but the score is usually quite tight in the game it then goes to most cash on hand and finally most veg available within your farm sean big name designer huge name trilogy of games at the gates loyang is probably the least known and least played of them does it deserve that reputation? Well, Ronan, Gates of Loyang. I was very excited. Big fan of the designer. I didn't actually realise that this was the first of the trilogy that he actually designed, but that actually kind of rings true for me now. I think it is the least polished one. This game, 
I'm going to lay my cards on the table uh, right from the beginning. This game, I don't think it's a bad game, but this game annoys me. It makes me angry. This game is full of little irritations that just make me dislike the game. First off, little, little, little tiny problem, man. There's no visual representation of your achievements, as in an Agricola. You, you've built something in an Agricola, you've got something in front of you. When your field is empty and this, it goes away. When your customer's satisfied, they go away. It just There's nothing in front of you, apart from that little piddly little marker that goes up that can easily be knocked off. Again, that's another little annoyance that everything can be just knocked a Sunday and then there's no way of actually tracking back to see what points you were on if you've forgotten. Yeah, that's, but that's my first one. No visual representation of what you've achieved. You're a strange man. I will not disagree with you on that. <laughs> so any game in which your points are registered with a victory point marker is irritating to you? No, but I think when you talk about the Harvest Trilogy, and what I was expecting and what I've come to expect from Uwe is that that visual representation of what you're doing and there's lots of going on and you can see what you've achieved at the end of the game. You've got, oh, look, there you go. It's my farm. It's my family. There's my pigs, my cows. It's there. It's there for you to see. This one is just didn't. And it's not the worst of them. Well, so you're saying it's not Agricola, so it's no good? No, I'm saying that there's no visual representation in a farming game. I'm farming for what? I've got no fields. Once my field's empty, it goes away. I don't replant it. It just goes. And something else comes in its place. It's just... It's like a supermarket game. It's, it's everything goes. Oh, look, there you go. That, that shelf's empty. We're going to refill it. But it is like a supermarket game. The theme of the game is I make stuff and sell it and I make stuff and sell it and I make stuff and sell it. Not what I expect. And by the end of the game, game, you've got more fields than you start with. But that's, I mean, that, that's just one of the minor little quibbles I've got with it. You and me are going to row about We're going to row. We are going to row about it. This game frustrates and annoys me. Yeah, you're Variety in score. When I play badly, I get 16 points. When I play well, I get 18 points. And when I play okay-ish, I get 17 points. Now, I have seen people get 15, and I have seen people get 19. I haven't seen any, any more variation than that. That's boring. That's just boring. I know. I know halfway through the game... I'm going to get 16 points if I'm playing badly. I know if I'm playing well, I'm going to get 18 points. You don't know your score halfway through the game. Yes, you do. Yes, you, you do. thought you, know you, you thought you had me nailed, and I caught up with you in the last game we played. So you're talking... That doesn't matter. No, no, that doesn't matter. I'm not saying how well the other person's playing. I knew I was on course for 17 or 18 points in that game because I was playing okay to well. So I agree with you that the spread is too a bit too tight. Okay, that's not my favourite part of the game. But what it does mean is every single point matters. And there's one of the great things that gets me about this game, and obviously I'm going to have to come in with the positives, is the agony of choice. And it is all the way through. Every choice matters. Every vegetable you decide to plant affects what customers are then available to you. Every card you take or put down affects what happens to the other players and to yourself. In terms of point scoring, as you well know, it's more efficient to pay for the points early on because if I can pay 5 gold to move up a space, it's better than paying 16 gold, but it limits then my choices. And if you get caught with too few money at the beginning of the game and you can't buy your way out or buy vegetables from your shop in certain situations, you can get yourself stuck and your points engine can really die. And it's that agony of, if I don't buy this now, I might end up losing the game in half an hour. Another slight tweak on that. I think 
if somebody gets two points ahead of you in this game, after a certain point, if somebody gets two points ahead of you at the beginning, not so much, I'd say into the the final third, or maybe even the, the second half, I think if someone gets two points ahead of you, unless their engine completely grinds to a halt, which I suppose can happen, they're going to win the game. Two points is a massive lead in this game. And he can't, no, it's not. You're talking over. No, it is. At that stage of the game, it is. It's Two not. points is massive. Why, though, because at that point, right, you've set yourself up, you've got a certain amount of vegetables. It depends how flexible you are. If you're able to get... like The regular customers might not come up that suit your market or suit your fields, right? It means you've got flexibility. You're going to be able to move stuff around but you're losing out then because if you're turning your pumpkin into a radish to fulfill your regular customer all the time, you then can't turn it into something else to plant a new field or take advantage of the fields that are coming up for two gold, which means you're going to lose out on, for example, casual customers and you will score fewer points. If this is a game where there's lots of calculations, but it's not all calculable. There is luck of the draw of the card. It might have gone your way for the first half and you get a bit of a lead and you think you're set up, but those regular customers only last four rounds. Your fields match your regular customers, you're going to score points, right? Suddenly those regular customers are gone and things start, don't go your way. You can lose that two-point advantage. Not in the final third, you can't. Not in the final third. You can't. Uh, not really. If you're in, a, you're in the final third, everyone's going to be able to pay one coin, and then what, you're going to pay 12, and then what, you're going to pay 14, and then you're going to pay 15 on top of that. If somebody's already two ahead... That's three casual customers. That's, that's all it takes, three casual customers. And you've seen me do it. You've seen me smash out my casual customers yeah, towards the end. We were level. Boom, boom, yeah, boom, yeah boom. we were level, and you took a two-point lead, and I know you I knew you'd won the game. That was like in round eight out of nine. No, that was in round six out of nine. And, so that's 40 minutes into a 60-minute game. Yeah, into the last third. So you're sitting there for 20 minutes, and someone's had a good run, and they've played well. And Yeah, OK, no, I'm, so. not, it's, I'm not saying it's the thing that breaks the game for me. It's not. It's just another minor irritant. There's no, there's no drama. You know who's won coming up to the end. There's no race to the finish unless, and this is, I suppose, when the tight scoring comes in, is if it does come down and you finish on 17 all because you are the 17-point master, then, then it goes down to, to how much money you've got. And then, then it, yeah, then there is a bit of tension. But if somebody does take that two-point lead into the final third, there's no tension. You know they've won, and you're eking out your final couple of goes. A little annoyance. It's a little annoyance. They all build up. They stack. Right, go on. <laughs> now, we've already had our argument about this one. Casual customers. I think they're far too important in the game. I've tried to play it. I've tried to vary my my gameplay. I've tried to use... I've tried to get the regular customers in, and maybe just the odd casual customer although i think there is an optimal way to play this game that is mitigate against the random by giving yourself lots of choices i think the casual customers are far too important against the regular customers the casual customers i think set up your economy get that economy booming if you don't get those casual customers in at the right time you can be just left stranded they are going to fund your your fields and fill your fields with vegetables they're going to fund getting other cards into your hand traders into your hand and be able to buy from the traders i think they are so important and i think the game is somewhat broken by their importance 
Broken's a big one. Okay, all right. Again, this is probably my biggest irritant. And it's not, again, it's not massive. And yeah, you're probably right. Broken is, but as I said, this game annoys me. It really frustrates me. I think... There are two types of customers, right? You prefer using casual ones. Clearly, they give you bigger ones. I don't hits. actually prefer it. I'd rather not use them, but I think I have to use them. But they're, they're the ones that give you one-off hits. Yeah, they give Isn't you one-off, but they obvious? set your economy going, and they allow you to do other things. If you don't get them at the right time when your economy needs a boost, then you're knackered. But there's ways of mitigating that. You take the market stall that gives you what you need for your casual customer so that you're ready at the time to be flexible enough to go, right, I need this money now. Boom, boom, boom. Sold, casual customer, done. Now I can get back to doing the other bit that I need to but do. But what if you haven't got that market store and what if you're not ready at the time? And what if you're the So no if you play poorly, you don't make no, money. No, no. What if it's for no fault money? of your own? If you've just not got the card draw to get that, ca- that so card right, into your right, hand. So as I said, right, it's quicker than the other Harvest games. It's probably more luck-based than the other Harvest games, but it does give the ability to mitigate. It does give the ability to plan ahead or ride your luck a little bit, play the card thing, which is why the card choices is so painful because you can see what the other player wants and you're trying to deny them, but the longer it goes, there might be a card out there that really suits you in the courtyard, which you want to grab, but you know that by grabbing it, you're going to give the market that that player really needs to them. I love that mechanism. I love that mechanism too. That's my only real positive. I love the interaction of the card draft, but it's after that the game kind of just fades to a solo play. Yeah, you can play the odd card on each other to nick a a thing here or hamper the other person, but I think it just becomes a solo game after that card draft, and that's why I really enjoy it. I look forward to the card draft, and then... It's back to solo play and watching someone moving, shuffling vegetables around. Usually, I'm happy with that, but there's something about this game that just irritates me. I think the learning of the timing of the helpers, I think it takes a lot of helpers in the game, it takes a long time to learn it, but I think as you play it more and more and more, you learn that certain helpers are going to be important to you at certain times, and to keep hold of them, the one that lets you nick a vegetable from someone else's market means that, do you know what, I can put that market down because I can nick that radish using this helper that I've, that I've held back and planned for. Again, I think there's ways of learning and mitigating these issues of that it's too luck-based. There is some luck in it. It's not... I, I, I can't really go over that anymore. But it's also really well made. It's really clear what's going on. It's intuitive how it all works. All of it makes sense. It is a perfectly well-constructed game that gives you really difficult choices all the way through. Yeah, I agree with most of what you said. It does give you difficult choices, but I think they they come every now and again. I think a lot of what you do is is obvious, and a lot of what you do is is driven by the cards that you get. I think the cards dictate what direction you're going to go in. Yes, I know there's the card draft, and you can mitigate against that to a certain degree, but if the cards that you need just don't come out, or if another person just is willing to hold on right to the end, and they know they've got the upper hand because they're going to go last, then... not going to get the card in and the cards you get are just going to drive where you go i can feel you shaking your head (laughs) i am shaking my head because it's a card driven game and the cards drive where you go well yeah they do that's 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 the game i don't what what puzzles me is that you like games similar to this 
and this one somehow annoys you. Because why is this one irritating? I you? think I think that that is the reason. It is similar, but it doesn't stand up to them. It doesn't stand up to Agricola. It doesn't stand up to Caverna. It doesn't stand up to Fields of Arlo. It doesn't stand up to Lahar. It's just not as good as them, and I'm disappointed with it. I was just disappointed. But it's quicker. It's kind of more relaxing. It's got lower interaction, which sometimes. It's a good thing. Sometimes, do you know what? I run around my little farm in my own way, trying to solve this puzzle, have the heavy interaction of the cards, and then try and work out then what to do with what I've been given, rather than, oh, geez, you know, I have to take start player now because family growth. If I don't take family growth now, I'll never be able to take that to make the extra four food that I need. That's stress. Or they are. Oh, it's one of those rounds where I only get one action before the ship's going. Oh! Maybe it's just this type of game. I want that stress. Maybe that's my mindset. This type of game should be firmly in that box. And maybe, yeah, this one steps outside. It is lighter. It is a little bit more luck-based. It should be more relaxing. It's not to me. I can play with the best of them head down, not looking what anyone else is doing. You've criticised me for it in the past, even in social games. Criticised or commented? <laughs> I criticise you for your opinion on this game. I comment on you playing Economy okay. Games Head Down. Okay, but <laughs> it has been documented and it has been mooted that I may play with my head down sometimes. And I am happy to do so. This one, I think it just gives the illusion, oh look, it's a social game. No, it's not. I'm all on my own. Oh no, I'm back with everybody. No, I'm not. I'm all on my own. And then you're just watching someone, as I said, poke pumpkins around the field and wonder what to do. <laughs> you're telling me you don't like watching someone poke pumpkins around certain the field? Certain people. Certain people. you changed. You've changed. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a police record that states otherwise here. <laughs> right. I, I am going to lead you away from our head-to-head butting here. The rule book is not great. No, no, it's not. It's as you said. It's it's a very intuitive game. Everything makes sense. Everything is there for a reason, and the reason is clear. And to actually mess up a rule book where a game almost sort of dictates how it should be played, they've done well. It is an achievement. It's an achievement. It is the stuff that's really easy to miss. Like before each card face, you're supposed to shuffle the discard pile back into the draw pile. Really easy to miss. The way that sort of star player works, very easy to miss. It's just certain. They're just in little in random just, yeah, it's, off it's, boxes that you wouldn't normally or I wouldn't be drawn to it. Yeah. Again, in the middle of paragraphs and stuff. Player count. Better with two, three, or four? I like it with two. I think that's at its best. I think there's too much AP, too much downtime with three or four. That might be just because I don't particularly like playing it, but I think it's... The quicker the better, is that what you're saying? Yeah, but you know me. I do get frustrated with with AP more than I probably should do because I get AP myself. But yeah, back to the pumpkin poking. No, I don't like watching it. The bonus I find with the higher player counts is that there's a bigger variety of cards coming out, which mitigates the luck. So you're likely to see more cards in the courtyard, which will then fit what you're trying to do as a plan. That might be where I'm going wrong, because I've played this mainly two-player. Maybe that, maybe I need to play this three or four-player, and then some of my issues might lessen, if not go away. Revel in your pumpkin poking. Embrace your true self. Okay. I think, Sean, it might be time for what I imagine is going to be slightly different summing-ups. I would imagine so. Now I've been I've been quite harsh on the game. It's not an awful game. I'm just disappointed. This is a game that I thought I would love. And there are elements that I do enjoy. But so much that frustrate and annoy me. Each annoyance on its own does not mean much. 
but they come together to make me dislike playing a game that I would otherwise think was a good game. I like the look of the game. I don't actively dislike it to the point that I would refuse a game, but after reviewing it for this episode, I'm ready for a break, and I will not be seeking it out anytime soon. I really like this game. I enjoy the smaller scale rather than the sort of sprawling multiple level of engines you get in the other Harvest games. And I'm a big fan of Agricola. I would rate this second among them, in fact. I put it ahead of Leave. I just find that Leave is like being at work, and it gives me too much of a tension headache, and I'm just trying to do too much of my brain. With Gates of Luoyang, I do find I'm thinking, and I'm making difficult decisions, and I'm agonising over things. But they're small decisions, they're small scale, so it doesn't mean that I'm thinking 15 steps ahead and how to turn this into that. By going to do, but I'm just thinking, right... How do I fulfill this? Is this customer worth taking? Is it worth me taking the two extra steps in the process or spending that extra money to fulfill this customer's order? Or is it not worth it? Should I risk it and wait for more customers to come out? Love the way that card sort of drafting works. There is some luck in the game. There are lots of calculations, but it's not all calculable. And that, I think, is a real fine balance. Does it sway the side of luck? I think it does sometimes, but the game doesn't go above 60 minutes. So it gives me a good brain workout in a small-scale, relaxing theme. It's just unique to me. It's found a real spot in my collection. I had this for years without playing. It's one of those that got lost on the shelf. And I'm glad we pulled it out. And I'm glad that we played it a few times in order to review it. Because it's going to stay in the rotation from now on. I am a big fan of it, the Gates of Yang, And I think it's going to stick with me for quite a long time. Thank you very much for listening to episode 48. There you have our thoughts on four more games. Yeah, thanks for joining us. Well done to Adam on his victory and good luck for the $500 voucher. Like I say, listen out for Tom and he'll tell you if you've won or not. And well done to our other winners for your card games. Well done, Sean, for surviving through to the end of the episode. And Thank you again, everyone, for your support, feedback, well wishes, competition entries, and generally being fantastic. And to lead us out, as always, we are proud members of the Dice Tower Network, along with the very best in gaming podcasts. We can be found on 2d6.org, along with audio, visual, and written content of the highest caliber. You can email us on the The Game Pit Podcast at gmail.com. We have a Facebook page. Pop along there with The Game Pit Podcast. We have a guild at the board game geek we love to hear from people on there talking about all things gaming about the episodes or just a random topic we are on twitter at game pit podcast and as rona said in the last episode we are newly on stitcher so come and find us on that music by e. Aaron. <laughs>